There is a perennial question which is often asked in Scripture, and in order for us to see a few passages which essentially ask the same question or at least raise the same issue, turn first in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, right after the book of Proverbs. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, just one verse, but it does capture from the cynic this idea of the prosperity of the wicked. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15, in my vain life... I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Now there, the cynic sage says, how is it in the world that there are those who are righteous who seem to perish, and those who are unrighteous, who seem to prosper. And listen further to Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1, which says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? And then turn your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. It gives us yet another example in verses 3 to 5 of this query that both the book of Ecclesiastes and Jeremiah the prophet has been asking. And here's yet another question of many believers throughout the ages in the form of the query of Asaph. Psalm 73, beginning in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And these could be multiplied with several other passages of Scripture. Even in the book of Job, questions like these are asked. It's repeated several other places in our Bibles. There is a tendency when you see the wicked prospering and seemingly seeing no punishment or judgment from God for their sin to naturally ask the question, why do they seem to prosper in their sin? And why do I, as a lover of God, don't always see the same prosperity from our God? Why is that? It's, a, it's an honest question in some ways. And as I said, notice that Asaph in Psalm 73 even admits that he was envious of the wicked because of their prosperity. It's a fair question in some ways because when you see it out in the world, You do wonder, you do ask yourself, why do they seem to be those who are getting all the goodies, and why do we, as the righteous, 
seem to receive more punishment, more challenge, more trials, more suffering? Well, to answer that question in an entire psalm, turn to Psalm 49. Psalm 49. Believe it or not, this is what is being discussed in Psalm 49. And it gives us maybe in a concentrated place with 20 verses the most extensive answer that we might otherwise receive as an answer to this question. Look at verse 16, for example. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich when the glory of his house increases. Don't be afraid. That's why the title of tonight's message is, Why Do You Fear? Why do I fear? Especially when it comes to the prosperity of the wicked. And that's what this psalm is particularly about. It's about an encouragement to believers not to envy the wicked rich and the powerfully prosperous. That's what it's all about. And I think we need that in our time. We see a lot of very powerful people. And often, even when they are called upon the carpet, they've got powerful attorneys who defend them vigorously with appeals after appeals after appeals. And finally, or so it seems, they get off with a mere slap of the hand. So true. I remember back in ministry in Little Rock, Arkansas, there was a sweet lady who was a part of our church there, and she and her husband were in the midst of a divorce prior to coming to our church, and he was never a part of our ministry there, but she had come to our ministry, and she was hurting. And I began to counsel with her and try to give her love and encouragement, my wife also, and several others in our congregation, and she was really going through a difficult time. And it was in part because in this divorce proceeding between she and her husband, he was a powerful person in the medical profession, and he had lots of money, and he treated her very, very poorly, and they were involved in this divorce proceeding where she would go before the judge and explain the situation and her needs and the overall assessment of what was going on, and the judge would slap the husband's hands, and he would say, you need to do this, and you need to pay up here, and you need to do what is right, and he would make incessant appeals, so much so that for 10 years of opportunity to minister to her and to encourage her and to give her counsel, this particular divorce case, because of his power and because of his riches, went 10 years and ultimately all the way to the Arkansas State Supreme Court. And so you and I, just with an illustration like that, can ask the question, why? Why? Why do the powerful seem so powerfully able to put us under the pile and for them seemingly to go scot-free? We know that they are unrighteous. We know that they are not doing what is right. We know that they ought to be punished. We know that all of these things are true. So the question is, what's God doing? Where is He in our time of need? Well, that's what Psalm 49 is all about. 
And I think you and I, just like that illustration and many, many others that we could give, we all need encouragement not to fear when those who are rich and powerful seem to be doing with us whatever they well please. It's precisely, beloved, because of the fact that we're living in the society in which we live that at any time it could be that we are brought inevitably to fear by those who are so incredibly rich and powerful. We seem as though there's nothing that we can do about it. But Psalm 49 gives us a marvelous perspective. This is a wisdom psalm, and I want you to see three outline points of the message tonight from Psalm 49, and the first one is this, wisdom for life and death from God's Word. That's the first outline point, wisdom for life and death from God's Word. In the first four verses of this psalm, which is that which is highlighted under this particular outline point, we see what the psalmist is doing. We don't know exactly who it is, but it says here in the title or the superscription to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, we do know that the sons of Korah uh, might have been musicians who were in charge of making sure that this song was sung regularly in the house of Israel. And I want you to notice some of the words in the first four verses of this psalm that tell us why this is a wisdom song. There are actually four, possibly even five words that jump out at us to tell us that this is indeed a wisdom psalm for the ages. And by the way, the first thing that it tells us in verse 1 is that this psalm is applicable to everyone. It's absolutely applicable to everyone. Notice verse 1 of Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples. Everyone. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. That pretty much covers it, doesn't it? It's for everybody. It's not just for the house of Israel. This is for all of us. It's for, verse 2, both low and high. That's so interesting. Uh, That's b'nai adam and b'nai ish. Adam is a Hebrew word for man, like Adam. Not just the first person ever, Adam, but also standing for all men. B'nai Adam. And then B'nai Ish. Ish is the word for man. Adam was called Ish, and Eve was called Isha. She's the mother of all living. So this is for everybody, both low and high, rich and poor together. So uh, here's a siren sound. Uh, Here's a, a wisdom song for the ages, and it's for everybody. It can apply to every single person in the world. Here's why you should not fear in times of trouble. And here's what this psalmist says. Here's what he's singing. Verse 3, my mouth shall speak wisdom. Wisdom means the skill that you and I can possess in matters of daily living. How to practically live in our world. And do we not need that for sure? Of course we do. We need wisdom. My mouth, he says, shall speak, or in this case, sing wisdom. The meditation, maybe that's even another wisdom word, of my heart shall be understanding. That's a third. Understanding is the idea in the Hebrew of discernment. I have to discern what's going on here with the unrighteous rich and the pompous 
prosperity of the wicked. I have to have understanding about this. Verse 4, I will incline my ear, here's another wisdom word, to a proverb. To a proverb. You say, wait a minute, this is a psalm, not a proverb. Well, this is wisdom literature, and it says that he's going to give us a proverb, and he's actually going to give us one in verse 12, and he's going to give us one in verse 20. In verse 12, it says, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. That sounds like a proverb, doesn't it? And verse 20, man in his pomp yet without understanding is like the beasts that perish. Proverb, this is, this is like something. This is compared to something. That's a proverb. We might even say today, let me tell you a parable. And this is what it says. And when he says, I'm inclining my ear to a proverb, he also says in verse 4 at the end of it, I will solve my riddle. That's yet another wisdom word to the music of the lyre. I'm going to explain to you why you shouldn't fear the unrighteous rich and the pompous kings of the earth. I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to show you in a song. I'm going to sing this to the music of the lyre. So he's basically telling us in these four verses, here's wisdom for life and death from God's Word. Here's what God's Word teaches us about the wisdom of the ages. Second outline point, why should I fear in times of trouble? I mean, if he's going to give us wisdom, wisdom for life and death from God's Word, here's the piece of wisdom that you and I have to have when we come against the unrighteous rich and their wickedness in positions of power. Here it is. Don't fear in times of trouble. Don't fear. It's, it's, it's a command. And that wisdom is given to us from verses 5 on through even verse 12. So in verses 5 to 12, the psalmist both asks and then answers with wisdom this question, why should I fear in times of trouble? And the answer is, you shouldn't, and here's why. Here's why. Those, according to verse 5, who are very sinful, and by the way, it uses the word iniquity, you can see that there, and who cheat are said to be surrounding or encompassing the righteous of the earth. Do you see it? Verse 5, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat surrounds me? They, they cheat me all around. Those, and then he's going to describe who these people are, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. You see, it isn't the issue of their wealth necessarily that's the real issue. You can have righteous people who have a lot of money. True? Right? It's the unrighteous rich that often wreak havoc to the people of God. So it isn't the issue of money in and of itself. It's what you do with it. It's it's what you do with it. The real issue is that whoever these people are that the psalmist is describing is saying that they are sinful and they have a cheating attitude behind their wealth. And my presumption is that they are saying with this sinfulness, this iniquity, I'm going to do everything I can to cheat the righteous out of their money so that I can have more. 
I think that's what they're saying. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. We find out exactly why the righteous should not fear in times of trouble. Here's some wisdom now. Here's a wisdom for all of us. Verse 7, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. What, What does he mean? What is he saying? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Well, just think about it. Here's the unrighteous rich. They're powerful. They're in positions of great power. And when it comes to fleecing those around them, they have no problem in doing that. It's very successful. They're amassing more money all the time, usually on the backs of those who are poor. They're not adjudicating rightly those around them. They're they're getting all of this cash and they're fleecing the flock, as it were. And yet this wisdom saying, this psalm, says something like this. No man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. You know what he's saying? You can't buy God off like you have others. You'll never be able to do it. There's no atonement price that you could pay with your checkbook that's going to appease God and get you off the hook. You may be able to do that with a lot of fancy lawyers. You may be able to sort of buy your way in and out of trouble in a human court, but in the divine judgment, when the time comes for your death, whoever you are as an unrighteous, rich man, pompous as you may be or have been in this life, you'll never be able to atone for your sins by buying God off. It's not going to happen. Notice what it goes on to say. For the ransom of their life, the unrighteous rich, the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. You could give money upon money upon money. You could give cows. You could give silver and precious stones. You could, you could lay all the cash you want before God himself, and the price is still going to be higher than that. It'll never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. What the psalmist is saying is don't think that the more you accumulate of your money, the more you think you can buy God off. Be careful about assuming what money can do by any means to help you bargain with your Creator especially in the day of your last breath. It's absolutely true. I mean, this is real wisdom. This is a gut check, especially for somebody who is wealthy. You think you can buy God off? You think you can satisfy Him? You think you can just uh, a sort of atone for your sins by, by doing something? And maybe part of the atonement here, at least the attempt, is, well, I'll do some good things. I'll do some... Uh, philanthropic exploits, uh, maybe get a couple of buildings named after me, uh, maybe I'll give to the local uh, children's hospital, and, and maybe in, in the face of doing that, uh, God will be appeased a little bit. Maybe he'll be a little bit more satisfied. But be careful, too, about focusing your heart on riches. 
That's why Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says this, Do not toil to obtain or acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, when it lights on the cash, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Here today, gone tomorrow. You can't buy off God. The reason we as the righteous don't have to fear is that while the wicked, rich, and powerful may have their momentary day in the sun, they aren't going to live forever, and one day they will go down to the pit. That's what it says. You're not going to buy God off and avoid the pit. What's that? That's the grave. Even the unrighteous rich, even the powerful, they're going to die. They're going to have to go to the judgment of God. No matter how much money they may have, they could never buy their way into a sufficient ransom in which to satisfy God for their sins. The atonement price is far more than they could ever attempt to buy off with Yahweh. How impossible is that? This is the wisdom of the psalmist. It goes back to those first four verses. Here's, here's wisdom. Here's a meditation of the discerning. Here's a proverb. Here's the solving of the riddle. Why? Why, the book of Ecclesiastes asks. Why, Jeremiah asks. Why, Psalm 73 and Asaph asks. And, and here's the reason. Verses 10, 11, and 12. For he sees, even this unrighteous rich fellow, for he sees that even the wise die. Even the wise person dies. Why? Because everybody dies. Everyone. You say, well, Enoch didn't die. Elisha didn't die. No, they're actually the exceptions that prove the rule. Everybody dies. And so this unrighteous, rich, powerful man, he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish. So the wise perish, uh, the fool perishes, somebody who's stupid, they perish, and what happens? They leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. And they had so much money, somebody named something after them. I mean, they got all the cash. They got all the power. They got all the notoriety. And what happens? Man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. That's what happens, folks. Mankind dies. All the creatures, the beasts of the earth, what happens to them? They die. If you want to put it on the sort of food chain all the way up, creatures, they all die. The one at the top of the list, that which was made out of the ground, Avam, he dies too. The wise die, the foolish die, the smart die, the stupid die, the rich die, the poor die. We all die. And this is what happens. And I think this is a huge warning, especially to the unrighteous people of this world, especially the unrighteous rich. That's why Proverbs 18.11 says, a rich man's wealth, Proverbs 18.11, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. I mean, 
he, he thinks he's impenetrable. He's got this big fortress. And he, he's behind in his house anybody attacking him, anybody overtaking him. He's got the money to fortify himself. And Proverbs 18.11, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. He's imagining it. He's imagining that nobody can touch him. I mean, if you have wealth, I mean, if you, if you happen to be one of those who is a bona fide, genuine believer, someone who's a Christian, someone who loves Jesus Christ with all their heart, if you have wealth, do what Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 say. You should mark down that passage. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Honor the Lord. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And if you happen to be under the duress of the unrighteous rich who are in power and you're constantly being manipulated, woe to those who are wickedly rich and powerful, who in all their pomposity... Do you see that there? Man in his pomp will not remain. His arrogance, who think their riches and their power will rescue them from the grave. They're like all the creatures of the earth. They perish. This might even be a warning for believers not to fixate on all the woes of our life. I mean... Every one of us, I'm sure, a time or two, you've been stiffed. You've been manipulated. Someone has given you a raw deal. And it might be someone in power over you, and and you get exasperated about it. And you ask the question, why? Lord, I'm trying to serve you, and and, and I love you, and, and I'm trying to do what you command, and I'm trying to minister to those around me, and then I get stiffed. Somebody has been unkind to me, and it happens to be this unrighteous rich person. And he's in positions of power, and there's nothing I can do. There's no basis for appeal. What's the command? Why should I fear in times of trouble? Don't fear. Who's in charge? God's in charge. He's ultimately in charge. Third and final outline point tonight. Why should I be afraid of the rich and powerful. Why should I be afraid of the rich and powerful? This covers verses 13 to 20. Verse 13, you don't have to be afraid of those who use their money and their power to influence or even to assault you because the very fact is they have, according to this verse, foolish confidence. Verse 13, this is the path What path? Those who die like beasts that perish. This is the path of those, all those who have foolish confidence. What kind of foolish confidence? Foolish confidence in your money. Foolish confidence in your power. Yet, after them, people approve of their boasts. You see that little Hebrew word selah after that? It means pause. Think about it. By the way, there's an alternate uh, translation of this particular verse. In my Bible, it says, or, for this phrase, yet after them people approve of their boasts, 
or and of those after them who approve of their boasts. In other words, there are going to be people who even after your death will say, but they, the unrighteous rich, they were good people. They did the right thing. And maybe even after their death, they've got names on buildings that were named after them. Oh, they were so wonderful. We're going to look for the days when so-and-so like that was back in power. People don't even get it after the unrighteous rich are dead and judged. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. It's not only the unrighteous rich, but it's all those people who approve of them and boast about them even after they've died. Verse 14, here's what's going to happen. You shouldn't fear anybody, even in your own time of trouble, because like sheep, these unrighteous rich and the guilty prosperous like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Sheol is the word for death. They're appointed for the grave. They're going to die. Death shall be their shepherd. That sounds pretty ominous, doesn't it? Death is what is going to shepherd them. I want Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Not death is my shepherd. And the upright, it seems to turn out very well. And the upright shall rule over them when? In the morning. In the morning. In other words... There's a dark night, but morning's coming, and in the morning, the upright will inevitably be the ones who rule because they rule righteously. They're going to triumph. They're going to triumph over the unrighteous rich. And what about the form, maybe even the body of the unrighteous rich? Here's what's going to happen to them. Look at the latter part of verse 14. Their form, maybe their their body, uh, maybe uh, the remembrance of who they were, their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Hey, don't fear the unrighteous rich because God will deal with them. Even if He doesn't choose to deal with them with you in your lifetime, He will. He will deal with them. Don't worry about it. Don't be afraid of them because your God will deal with them in His time and in His way. You say, I'm not sure I believe that. Proverbs 11.7. Proverbs 11.7. When the wicked dies, listen to the Word of God. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish And the expectation of wealth perishes too. That's the guilt edge guarantee. That if you're all about pursuing your riches, especially so that you can manipulate and coerce and fleece others, God says from His Word, when the wicked dies, His hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. You say, okay, okay. I shouldn't be... I shouldn't be fearful. I should trust God no matter who's over me, no matter who's attempting to, to manipulate me and 
no matter who's trying to fleece me with, with their power and their riches, I know that, I know that, but it's such a temptation. God, what are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm like Jeremiah, or I'm like the cynic sage in Ecclesiastes, or I'm like Asaph in Psalm 73. But shouldn't it be the reverse, that the righteous prosper all the time, every time, all the way, every day? Shouldn't it be that the wicked people, these, these rich and powerful and beautiful and bold persons who've got all the class and all the money and all the power, shouldn't they be judged and shouldn't they be judged immediately? God's going to do it in His way. God's going to do it in His time. And you need to trust Him because He knows what's happening. He knows what's the end from the beginning. He knows. He's in charge. He's sovereign. What are you supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to be righteous. We're supposed to be lovers of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be trusting that God in Christ Jesus will settle all accounts, and He will, and He'll do it in His time, and He'll do it in His way. And when you and I die, look at verse 15. This may be the fulcrum upon which this entire psalm turns and gives us the greatest encouragement of all. But God will ransom my soul That's the soul of the psalmist. It's the soul of every righteous person. And he will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, the power of death. Remember that ransom idea? Remember earlier when it says, verse 7, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. If there's no ransom price that a rich man could pay to get himself out of the pit, then what chance do we have? What opportunity do we have? What future do we have? Verse 15, God will ransom my soul from the power of death, for he will what? He'll receive me. He'll receive me. I'd say that's that's ample reward. Wouldn't you? That's, that's an ample reward. You say, no, I want the best that life can, can give me now, and I want the reward hereafter. I want all the goodies now and the heavenly goodies hereafter. Well, what did we say this morning, and what does the Bible teach us, generally speaking? You live righteously in Christ, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer in this world. You suffer the pain and the agonies of the unrighteousness of our planet. You've got wicked men and you've got a cursed earth. You've got people who will hate your righteousness and attempt to bring you down. And you'll have the rich and the powerful in their unrighteous ways and they won't want to hear your message and they won't want to hear your testimony for Jesus Christ and so they're going to make it tough on you and here's our answer, but God will ransom my soul from death for He will receive me. Now, I don't know if this is explicitly talking about resurrection, but it certainly perhaps could. You know, the Old Testament in a few places does refer to resurrection. And, and this may be resurrection. And even if it isn't, look, look back at Psalm 16. 
Psalm 16. Uh, Even if this is not talking about resurrection, it's certainly talking to us about the fact that there is something beyond the grave for us. It's not just you and I, the righteous, going along with the unrighteous to the grave, to the pit, where we're all going to languish there. No, we're going we're gonna to die, but we're going to be raised again. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is what? Fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See that phrase? In your presence there is fullness of joy. Look at the next psalm, Psalm 17, verse 15. Mark these down. Mark them either in your Bible or if you're taking notes. Think of this. Bank on this. Live now in light of this. Psalm 17, 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. That's not just when you awake in the morning. That's when you are awake in eternity. What an encouragement. You say, well, does the Old Testament really, really talk about resurrection? Yes, it does. Look at Daniel 12. Daniel chapter 12. Most certainly it does. And even if there are hints here and there, even if there's a bit of of, uh, sort of an, an oblique reference here and there to resurrection, it certainly is emphatic in Daniel 12. Look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those, Daniel 12, 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, like the stars forever and ever. And by the way, when it mentions ransom here in Psalm 49, 15, God will ransom me. I've read the New Testament, and even though the Old Testament, they wouldn't have known this, we know this by fuller revelation. Look at Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. I've read about the very person who's going to ransom, in fact, has already ransomed us. And it's the Lord Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's the parallel to Mark 10.45, isn't it? Jesus Christ is the one who paid my ransom. 1 Corinthians 15, resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. Jesus Christ is the one who paid my ransom. So even if they didn't know the name of Jesus, and they certainly didn't in Psalm 49, we know who it is. We know who He is. It's, it's the Lord Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. We know the rest of the story. Christ Jesus 
who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is our ransom. Jesus is the one who shall ransom us from our sins. And he did so. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he, speaking of Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I mean, you have to know that according to Psalm 49, obliquely, admittedly, but in full bloom in the New Testament, that there's a ransom. There's a ransom for us. There's no reason to fear. There's no reason to fear in this life about the unrighteous rich and the pompous prosperings of these iniquitous persons. Not at all. You have to know that according to verses 16 to 20 of Psalm 49, be not afraid when a man becomes rich. When the glory of his house increases... Don't cower in fear, for when he dies, notice this, Psalm 49, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. No hearse carrying a U-Haul. You can't take your stuff with you. His glory will not go down after him. He goes right to the pit, and he can't take his money with him. And he can't do anything to you when this happens, for though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, or maybe the translation is something like this, for when he lives, he congratulates himself, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, that means he will die, he will go to those who are already dead, and he will never again see light. And what will we see? We will see light. So even if you've been mistreated, manipulated, sued, badgered, assaulted, regardless of what it is, even from those who are rich and powerful, the man who cheats and troubles the righteous will never be able to take his riches and power with him to the grave. His glory will not follow him. I mean, what a fantastic psalm of encouragement. Don't fear. Do not fear. Psalm 39.6, Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. You can't take it with you, and you don't even know what's going to happen to it when you're gone. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs 11.4. See, if you're righteous and you pursue righteousness, you shall have the upper hand, ultimately and finally, even if they have the upper hand now. I mean, don't, don't be afraid. Don't, don't say to yourself, well, I mean, I know this is what the psalm says. I know that this is what I'm supposed to do, but I'm still afraid. Those commands are surely there, and they are to be obeyed. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. And certainly don't fear 
that person fear God who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Do you remember the story as we close in Luke chapter 12? Here's what it says. Luke chapter 12. Look at verse 16 if you're there. Luke 12, 16. And Jesus told them a parable. It was about somebody who is covetous, the Bible says. Verse 15. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Maybe Jesus is telling that parable for people who were envious of the unrighteous rich. Remember that in Psalm 73 with Asaph? Uh, maybe, maybe the issue we're dealing with here is the covetousness of a person who is righteous, but who is tempted to say, wait a minute, I see these unrighteous rich people and these powerful people, I see them getting ahead, I see them getting richer, and maybe the real issue is not their assaults on me, but maybe the real issue is I want to get in on some of that. Because they seem to be prospering, they seem to be growing in their acquiring of wealth, and I'm a little covetous. And Jesus says, let me tell you a parable about someone who has that kind of mindset. Verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, think of the pomposity here, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Isn't life easy? And I know what I'll do because I'm acquiring so much more produce, so much more product, so much more material possessions. I'll build bigger barns to store all my stuff. And Jesus says in the parable, verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And maybe he even got some of this because he manipulated others. Verse 20, Jesus' parable, But God said to him, Fool! Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You say, well, I'm certainly not rich as far as this life is concerned. Well, the alternative, be rich toward God. Be magnanimous in your spiritual riches with God. So I ask one final time, why do you fear? Why do I fear? Trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in the one who will resurrect you from the dead. He will receive me. Ransoming your soul from the power of death and receiving you into his very presence. What a What a great psalm. We should never fear again, right? Lord, protect us from our fears, from the Word of God, like Psalm 49. Let's pray. Father, 
We want to be those who are fearless, not fearful. Not fearing what man could do to us, even the rich and the powerful. If they be unrighteous, don't fear. Be fearless. Trust God. He's got your back. He's going to take His arms of protection and put them around you. And even if you do suffer in this life, even if you are fleeced, even if you are litigated against and you're righteous and you lose your things, when you die, your soul will go into the very presence of your Creator. And you'll see light. And you'll be blessed. And then when the resurrection comes, you'll be received, body and soul, into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there, you'll never be assaulted again. And where there will be no fear. Oh, Heavenly Father, Thank you for the correction that we receive from Psalm 49. Let us not fear what any man can do, but let us fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We revere you, we love you, and we believe you and will respond to you in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.